Shelter line stretching around the corner. Welcome to the New World Order. Families sleeping in the cars in the Southwest. No home, no job, no peace, no rest. Bruce Springsteen, The Ghost of Tom Joad. Welcome to This is the End. I'm your host, the pop mythologist, and this will be part two of my conversation with pop mythology film critic and novelist Just Kroll, where we discuss 10 films about collapse. If you haven't heard part one yet, I definitely recommend doing so first because I explain some basic things like our criteria for how we selected these films. And I also explain our approach to spoilers and the warning system for spoilers that we use. So definitely listen to part one first and even if you've already heard it, you might want to re-listen to the first few minutes just to refresh yourself about the spoiler warning method that we use here. Other than that, I want to get right to part two of this episode. But just very quickly, I want to set up some context by mentioning that the last movie we had discussed at the end of part two was the film Idiocracy, directed by Mike Judge. And so we had just finished talking about that movie. And as part two begins, I introduce the next film. Okay, let's get right to it. In Idiocracy, we see a world where, well, this one part that we actually didn't talk about, it was the garbage, right? The waste, mm. the trash that gets out of control in, in that future. Well, in our next movie, and I think you know what's coming, waste has not only gotten out of control, it has literally taken over the entire planet to the point where the ecosystem has been destroyed. And so, Jess, tell me which movie is next. Oh, we're talking about Wally. It's the one animated film on our list, even though we discussed numerous potential other works of animation to include. And probably we could do an entire separate list of animated films about collapse. So Wally, okay, directed by Andrew Stanton, obviously one of Pixar's amazingly consistently good films. Yeah, they had that run about this time where this one and then it was and then it was up. And then I think it was something else. And then it was like Toy Story 3. But yeah, I was a late convert to the whole 3D animation thing because, you know, being a comic book guy when I was growing up, I was very much into the, the hand-drawn animation. I was very much not into computer. But Wally up and, and sort of Toy Story 3 made me understand, like, this is really, really good material. Yeah, yeah I mean, Pixar just had this ridiculous run of just, like, it was just one excellent movie after another. And mm -hmm. But in particular, what struck me about this film was how well it works on multiple levels and how, despite the fact that it's obviously a family-friendly G-rated movie, mm -hmm. when you think about it, it's actually pretty dark when you yes. get right down to it, right? Oh, so um, so. <laughs> why? So why don't you start us off? What do you think about WALL-E? What first struck me about WALL-E, because it's the, the very beginning, is the first, I think it's like the first 20 minutes, like a third of the film has no direct dialogue whatsoever. It's the part on, on Earth that's just Wally going out doing his day. It, it's so lonely and so beautifully animated and created where you see his day, you understand, you see what, what Wally's existence is like, you understand like why he's created this way. There's a, a lot of questions about why the planet's you know, what happened to it and all this type of stuff. That's not really that important. You accept this. It's your willing suspension of disbelief. But that first 
30 minutes or so of him going around the, the overwhelming loneliness and Eve coming in and him watching, you know, old, the same old musical again and again and the cockroach friend. It's like something that it's, it's what I imagine a Stanley Kubrick movie for children would be like. <laughs> and that thought alone is, is uh, quite compelling for me for the rest of this film. And then you get to the parts where it's complete corporate control to the point where the children are conditioned. You know, A is for Axiom, your home. B is for, by and large, your best friend. That's bone-chilling in its own way. It's funny because of the absurdity. It is bone-chilling when you think about, like, okay, now the corporation that owns everything and owns the ship that you're on and owns and creates all the food that you that you make is your best friend, even though actually we destroyed the planet and we're controlling your lives. Rondo is what plants like. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's it's complete privatization of... There's no like authority in this movie outside of, by and large. Like, what happened to the government of this planet? <laughs> this, instead, the, the president or CEO... Um, I want to say Mike Willard, Fred Willard, Fred Willard. He is giving speeches like the president of the United States, but he's the head of by and large. Like that's disturbing. <laughs> well, yeah, that speaks volumes, right? The fact that there's just no difference anymore in mm -hmm. that future between somebody who looks and sounds like the president, but apparently is also like the CEO of what seems to be the dominant corporation in that future. But yeah, but to start with what you just mentioned regarding the first third of the film, which is mm. masterfully done. I mean, it's not ex exactly a silent film, obviously, because there's diegetic sound, but yes. there's, yeah, there's no dialogue. It's just this robot doing its thing. And the, what, what's amazing about the, the environment, it has this really realistic look. The mountains of waste and trash kind of have this realistic tint to it, the color and the way it's drawn. And it's just very, other than Wally himself, which I mean, he looks cute, but the world just looks very bleak and dark. And considering the fact that it's this family oriented, you know, animated film, I was, was quite taken aback. I'm like, oh, like this is pretty, in some ways, really serious, a serious film. I mean, arguably they're all kind of serious in some ways, right? But even just like visually, it looked to my eyes very realistic and bleak. And well, I, mean, I, I think of when I watch a movie like this, I think of some of the entertainment that I saw when when I was a kid. And, you know, like the Transformers wasn't going to try and do something like this. <laughs> it was a toy commercial. Whereas Wally is it's it's a very satirical film. There's, you know, the people who become morbidly obese out of inactivity and you know they just have machines that play tennis for them and microgravity shrinks the bones and all this it's surprisingly sophisticated for well we think it's surprisingly sophisticated for child-friendly entertainment even though you know people in other children in other countries you look at not all but some anime that's made for for children in Japan, and it's it's also very sophisticated. Whereas a lot of American children, I think, through television, are kind of treated like idiots, treated kind of like you know people in in idiocracy. Well, that's the thing that Pixar has always excelled at, right? Was just kind of like giving mm -hmm. young children and their parents and adults in general 
an equal amount of things to appreciate、um, as they're watching. But yeah, so you brought up the the people and their complete reliance on technology and constant distract. Oh well, here again is another theme that's recurrent in our movies, which is distraction and constant、mm. stimulation. And such dependence on technology that they have literally lost the ability to walk on their own two feet. Like not just figuratively, which is also the case, but literally. And again, like the darkness of that, right? If you think about just kind of how scathing critique on, like the corporate takeover of everything and just overconsumption and the overdependence on technology and this kind of constant, never-ending distraction. Right, like those two characters. It's it's only when I think two characters are ac- accidentally disconnected from their AI interface. Yeah, Mary and John. Yeah, yeah. Very loaded names, by the way, Mary and John. And, and of course, like the captain is kind of like the only one who sort of voluntarily disconnects, so to speak. But、um, I, the captain is a really interesting character. We'll come back to him. But yeah, and so, and so like the, yeah, the first third is really remarkable in that way. And and even when they go on the ship, you know, there's some talking, right, with the human characters, but there's still a lot of just robots making、yes. sounds, and Wally just saying Eve or Eve is it? I mean,、yeah. technically her name is Eve, but he, the、Easy. way he pronounces it, it sounds like Eva or Eva. It sounds like Eva, but yeah, it is Eve. Yeah. So he's like, you know, it's just him saying her name in different ways, like Eva, Eva, <laughs> you know. <Yeah>. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And and her saying Wally and definitely like Wally Wally、yeah. you know and directive plant <laughs> right what they do with these two or three words、um, yeah and, and it's amazing what the filmmakers are able to pull off because not only are they these characters are limited in vocabulary and dialogue they don't even have like normal facial human expressions right so they're kind of limited and they're really got to do a lot with just like body language or you know the eyes changing shape. Again, the tone of voice when she says "Wally" when when she's like angry or annoyed or scared or sad. Like the filmmakers set these limitations for themselves, and I feel like sometimes the best art comes out of intentionally created limitations, and then you sort of work、oh, within that. Absolutely. I mean, look at look at Wally the way that he's he's so expressive with just you know like just a pair of eyes that can droop. And then you know you see the focus within within the lenses, or you see the body language, the way he folds his hands, the way he sort of like lowers, the way he raises. Yeah, it's it's he's a remarkably designed character. I just kind of want to also briefly mention that the theme of waste kind of taking over and making the planet uninhabitable. It's also true in real life that landfills are one of the the biggest you know sources of. Of greenhouse gases of methane, and so、yes. you know there is that kind of you know I mean the viewer is free to make that connection or, or to not make it, but certainly it's there, and the significance of the plant is because、mm-hmm. there's life growing on a planet that was for a while dead, right? And so、Completely. it's kind of like there is very much that ecological component to to the film, and it is the cause of the collapse that's depicted in that film.、Mm-hmm. Well, it, what's what's interesting about this is I remember the first time I saw this movie, it was one of the rare occurrences where I watched the movie once one day and then I watched it immediately again the next day. I can count on you know a single hand how many times I've I've done that, but I remember being so taken by the the satirical aspect of it, the social you know socio political aspect of it, that I looked into this and 
I don't remember the exact source because obviously it was a long time ago, but I read a review, an interview with the director where he said that there was no intentional social satire to this movie. And that struck me as, as being like, uh, how isn't there, you know, at some point during production, they would have had to realize like, oh, we're, we're making a, a sociopolitical statement with this about corporatization, about environmental concerns, about overconsumption, about consumerism, because it is so obvious and so prevalent. Like, how could you not see it? Oh, that just struck I me did, as I did not, bizarre. I, 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 that is wild. I did not know that. Um, that's like Mike Judge saying, oh, sure, my, <laughs> the title of my movie is called Idiocracy, but I'm not making any kind of statement on human intelligence. Or, <laughs> I mean, that's so weird. For me, it was such a prominent feature. I mean, just the way, and again, this overlaps with Idiocracy and another movie that we have yet to get to, but like the way that the corporate world will be like the foremost contributors of these problems and these crises, mm -hmm. and then they kind of turn around and offer the solutions, right? Or the quote unquote, the solutions, right? Oh, yeah. The um, solution doesn't work. <laughs> solution never works. Yeah. Well, whether it's Brondo or, or in this case, like this, this, this by and you know, large, this spaceship that there's of which there's no intention, as the movie shows us, of ever really going back to Earth, oh, yeah. but to keep these people in this perpetual, infinite, sort of corporatized, dystopian world, you know. Uh, speaking of which, so I mean, yeah, so Axiom, obviously, a very visual, direct reference to Hal in 2001. Mm -hmm. And kind of brings up another theme in the film, which is the role of AI in Collapse. Hmm. Like, like what do you think of Axiom or the Axiom computer? Otto? Oh, Otto, is that his name? And that's, that's, that's what they call him. The autopilot is called Otto by, uh, by the captain. Oh, right. Captain right. McCree. Um, yeah, so the, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, there's, there's just the design. There's the HAL, the HAL I with the, uh, the traditional like ship steering wheel is just very nicely done. Um, my use of AI, not something I had really, really given a lot of thought to because most of my attention is with this film is, is spent on, you know, commercialization and waste and the microgravity and obesity and all that type of stuff. But sure. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of, in terms of AI, I don't know. There's, there's, there's a lot of discussion now about the AR, AI art and I'm getting I'm getting more and more disillusioned with the, the the future of artificial intelligence. You know, not just because someday there will be entire AI books and therefore people like me are going to be obsolete, but because it never goes the way that people uh, intend it to go. There's always the unforeseen consequences of it, and we have generations of science fiction films warning us about that, and yet we're still charging full speed into it. Yeah, I mean, the captain kind of symbolizes that where he thinks he's in charge, right? Mm -hmm. But when it really gets down to it, when it really matters, and he actually does try to sort of take command, Otto's like, I mean, it's clear who's really in charge. And yeah. this kind of displacement of the role of the human being in just the, the running of society, right? Otto is kind of like the central intelligence of that of that spaceship, right? And Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so you... Yeah, and so you brought up like AI taking over art. That's obviously a very contested topic right now with people on both sides arguing different mm -hmm. points. Yeah, I can very easily see novels written by AI. I mean, even just like some of these, have you gone to some of these um, 
what the specific names are kind of escaping me right now, but there's one where you can go in and there's a chat window. You just type in a question and it'll write you an entire essay that's very convincing that, that it really looks like a person wrote it. Um, I, I, I heard about that because there's, there's like anti-cheat software going around in, in uh, uh, professor circles. Yeah, professors are obviously concerned about that. And there's some arguments mm-hmm. on the other side as well saying, well, well, no, it's not necessarily like going to be disaster. I mean, it could be disastrous, but it's not necessarily going to be. And there could be some good things to it as well. So, you know, obviously there are like different perspectives, but mm-hmm. a very major concern throughout much of science fiction, of course, has been the role of AI yeah. in some kind of societal decline or breakdown. So, I mean, like obviously Terminator, right? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, The Matrix, there's so many stories, whether it's film or novels or video games that explore this kind of question of the very the very first like big plot that I thought of when I was a kid and I started, you know, drawing comic books and I started writing things was along those lines. And eventually, like years later, I saw the exact almost the exact same idea I had presented as The Matrix. The story that I kept telling myself, one day I'm going to write this story, one day when I'm better, one day when I'm good. And then I, in 1998 I, or 99, I go to the movies and, and there's the same idea I had. And I was just sort of like, well, there goes that idea. Can't do it okay. now. But it's one of the reasons why I don't like that movie. I uh, gotcha. And I also want to be fair to AI. And Wally mm-hmm. does a good job. Again, it, it does so well on multiple levels. Because, yeah, there's the character of Otto. Mm-hmm. that seems kind of malevolent. It's kind of like Hal. At mm-hmm. the same time, we have to remember that AI also saves the world, essentially, right? So Eve and Wally That's true. are the heroes. And even the, that gang of, you know, quote unquote, crazy or malfunctioning robots. The rogue robots, yeah. Yeah, right? That, which is like the stuff of science fiction nightmare, usually, like rogue robots gone rogue, right? That's like the sort of a mainstay of science fiction, but in this movie, they save the day. <laughs> that is true. The, the The robots that are ruining everything are the ones that are following their program. The ones that right. are, you know, heroic are the ones that don't follow the program, that malfunction exactly. along those lines, which is a nice sort of flip of the usual. Of that trope. Uh, yeah, of that trope. That's a, that's a nice inversion of it. Well, I mean, that's also something that you can sort of, sort of look at in terms of, of human, you know, a lot of the movies that we're talking about, the problems are caused by people following the program, whereas the heroes of these films are the people who don't exactly follow the program. And that's the same thing that happens in this with the AI. Very well put. Yeah, no, I, I agree absolutely. And I know that people on many of these subreddits groups that I'm on uh, would also create, because that's kind of like the perennial complaint, right? That there's just this programming that people are just following and not really waking up from that is one of the major contributing factors of societal mm-hmm. decline and eventual collapse. So good point there as well. Another way in which, in which this movie um, is similar to Idiocracy, actually, is that uh, it's the implicit trust of, of authority that the captain has. Like, well, Otto's, Otto's designed to, to fly the ship. Okay, Otto knows best. I just push these two buttons. I make an announcement. My job's done. The ship will take care of the rest of it. It's the same thing that you see in, in Idiocracy with the, the the corporate control there. Like, Brondo is what plants crave. Therefore, they know better than I do. But with Wally, 
it's that very programming, it's that very authority that is being used to take advantage of the people, to keep them captive, to keep them there and stationary and consuming. One thing, this is slightly, uh, slightly off of that topic, but this movie came out in 2008. I believe the iPhone first debuted in 2008. And the scene, as you mentioned, with Mary and John, the people who, like, at some point, they actually put their screens away. That's kind of chilling that this movie did such a good job of nailing, you know, we've, we've all seen people walking down the street that bump into other people, bump into something else because they're too busy staring at their phones. In this movie, they're busy staring at their screens and yapping at the person next to them that they don't notice. There's this amazing, beautiful display of the universe right outside their window. And also even just like, there's is, wasn't that that moment where two friends are side by side yes. and they're talking yes. to each other, but they're talking to each other yeah. through their screens. Yeah. So kind of like, you know, have you heard about people like they're in the same house or even in the same room, they text each other like, hey, you want to go get something to eat? Yes. I mean, I can, I can understand that if there's like, if you if there's multiple floors in, in somebody's house, you don't want to go yelling down, down the staircase, but you know, yeah, come on, get up, use your legs. Yeah. They're there yeah. for a reason. Yeah. Get some, get some blood flowing. Yeah, but that's also a great point and a good parallel about the the role of authority um, that you also just made there, which is also partially a theme in another movie that we'll be getting to a bit later. Gosh, all these I just love thinking about all these overlapping elements and themes. It's it's so interesting. I, I like I like hearing it and trying to think like, okay, which movie is it that he's that he's alluding to this time? <laughs> well, before we get to the next movie, I'm definitely curious about what rating you would give Wally. Wally's an easy four, possible four point five, I would say. Yeah, like the, the, yeah. If if people are looking for you know like a short description of these, like four to me is a great movie. Four point five is like an amazing piece of art. Um, I save my fives for something that I cannot personally conceive of a way to improve without changing its nature. And I mentioned that to to some people a little while ago, and they kind of ridiculed me after a while about it. But it's it's the way that I look at it, whether or not other people understand that, I don't know. But it's something that even if I was to look at it and and say, well, this could be made better, the implications of making that one change might actually make the film worse. That's that's the way I look at it. I just had my my third 5.0 rating this year. So remind me which film that was. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Ah, yes, I remember. Yep, yep. Yeah. That was the one. Yeah. Well, so obviously in Wally, you have mm-hmm. humanity escaping Earth, going out into space. While our next movie also has at least a very small <laughs> portion of humanity escape <laughs> Earth after it's been destroyed. So, Jess, what is our next film? Oh, this is the the modern horror classic. Don't look up. <laughs> Yes, last year's <laughs> Don't Look Up, directed by Adam McKay, who in my mind is actually kind of like becoming sort of like a collapsed filmmaker because he, <laughs> one of his previous movies was The Big Short, which was basically about the economic crisis and collapse of 2008. But this, oh God, I mean, what, I don't even know where to start with this one. Um, well, it was, also, it was also co-written by David Sheroda. Yes, also very important credit to mention. Actually, I do know where to start with this film. I mentioned earlier for Children of Men and Global Infertility, the whole concept of a high-impact, low-probability event. 
Well, it just so happens that professional futurists consider this scenario as well. And, and obviously, in this movie, it's, it's symbolic. But even taking it just at the literal surface level of a comet or an asteroid hitting the Earth, it actually is a scenario that futurists look at and think about. Because, again, even though there's low probability, it's very high impact, potentially, and has enough probability for there to actually be, as the film itself shows us, a real-life planetary defense coordination office. And there's also a planetary defense conference that takes place every two years where people get together and share research and talk about stuff. So this is, you know, this is not some implausible thing that could never possibly happen. There is a possibility enough for these organizations to exist. So, uh, but obviously the movie resonates for the most people as an allegory about climate change. So having said that, Jess, what are your general thoughts uh, on Don't Look Up to get us started? Um, well, where to start? As Like you said, where to start with Don't Look Up? So I think this is a good place to start. It's called a dark comedy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I do think it's funny. Like I, I had definite laugh out loud moments in this film. Did you think the the com- the comedic aspects were funny, were effective? Oh, it is. I mean, it is a funny movie. It is also a comedy. But the thing that sort of gets me about the comedy in this one is that we we laugh at it, but at the same time, there's that that fear behind it. Because as much as we sort of look at somebody like the the president in this or uh, Jonah Hill's character. And we think, oh, that's that he's so dumb. At the same time, you're like, yeah, but he's just like two degrees away from a real person that we can, you know, we actually know and we can name. And that's what really gets me about the humor horror aspect of this movie is it's just there's there's the old Simpsons line. It's funny because it's true. The problem with this is that the joke is on us. (laughs) Yeah. What I thought was interesting, too, was the way they introduce the comedic aspects. Because, like, the first 15, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of the movie are kind of played straightforward. Like, it's it's Kate DiBiaschi discovering the comet. Um, She calls Mm -hmm. Professor Mindy. You know, like, he gets all the students together. And it's it's kind of pretty, like, just normal. It's, like, serious, you know. Mm -hmm. And... If you went into this movie completely blind, like not knowing anything, the first indication that something is not right <laughs> is Jonah Hill's character, right? Because oh, like yes, they're, they're waiting at the White House. I mean, yeah, the general charges money, but you don't know there's anything wrong with that until later when Kate mm-hmm. discovers that they're free. So that part, even that part is kind of straightforward. And it's only when Jonah Hill's character, I can't even remember what this first stupid thing he says is, but like, it's only when he opens his mouth that we're like, okay. This, <laughs> something yeah. is not right here. Something is amiss. And, yes. and I thought that was kind of interesting, you know, and, and obviously the central, the, the heroes, you know, Randall Mindy, Katie Biaski, uh, Professor Oglethorpe, they continue <laughs> throughout the entire film to be normal and serious, which is why it's like we sort of vicariously experience this, oh my God, what the hell people kind of feeling, right? Yeah. That a lot of people in real life experience where you know and, and and certainly activists in particular where they're just trying to just get people to either 
pay attention or believe them, or if they already believe them, tend to step up the level of concern and action. You know, because you have like Jonah Hill's character, which is obviously like belongs in idiocracy, right? Yes. Um, just <laughs> clueless. And, and then you, you, you have levels. And then you have like uh, someone like the president who is not quite as dumb as he is, mm-hmm. but is, is still a little bit dumb, but is smart enough to be sort of like strategic politically. And so she's thinking about the midterms and is worried more about how this will look. And I don't know, there's just like all these different levels of obstacles that the characters have to go. Like, like so the journalists, the, the, the two, the, the, the anchors of the mm-hmm. talk show, um, they're not dumb. You know, it's clear that they're not dumb, but they're just so completely fixated with the singular goal of just making the show be like a light distraction, you know, be funny, that they can't stop to really absorb the gravity of the situation, right? So there are these different levels of resistance that the protagonists have to deal with. And with each kind of resistance, trying to figure out how, how do we like get around this? How do we get around like Jonah Hill's stupidity? How do we get around the, the the president's sort of calculative nature? How do we sort of get past the shallowness of the media? I mean, even a nominally quote unquote serious publication uh, was it? I can't remember. It was like the version of the Washington Post in the movie or something? It was a Washington something. I, I can't remember. remember it. No. Yeah, but there was Sorry. like a, a newspaper. I think that was kind of like a stand, like a sort of like a a stand in oh, for maybe like a right. Washington Post yeah, it was like um, yeah. There was the there was the BuzzFeed writer, and then there was the like the Washington Post writer or something like that. Yeah, yeah right? there was a BuzzFeed writer who obviously only cares about like the clickbait the headline, clickbait. but there were like yeah. these you know quote unquote serious journalists who even yeah. then they're just kind of like, eh, you know, <laughs> we're just going to give up on this story. You mentioned with but, with the the yeah. the Jonah. Oh, can I cut you off? Yeah, no, absolutely. Go ahead, please. Okay, sorry about that. Um, there, you mentioned the Jonah Hill character. Jonah Hill. Jonah Hill's character to me is, in terms of like levels of humor, um, Jonah Hill's like ch- the cheap humor. He's the one that that is the most overtly comedic. He's sort of the easy laughs. Like, oh, okay, yeah, I can see he's he's stupid. He belongs in idiocracy. He's very crude, saying those things about his mom. And then there's the sort of the the darker humor. And I say dark in terms of satire, in terms of paralleling something that that is real and that's like the president that's you know the television hosts and one thing that strikes me about this movie as being so good that a lot of people have criticized is that mindy doesn't spend the whole movie focused on like this comet that's that's coming that is 100 coming he gets distracted by the trappings of fame. He, you know, gets pulled over into the administration doing, you know, propaganda videos for them. He gets pulled into the affair with, with, uh, Kate Blanchett's character. Um, Evelyn, what is it? Um, but he gets distracted and that's very, very authentic to humanity. We are an easily distracted species. You know, that's why they keep the show light is so that people can be distracted from it. And, the film itself gets distracted from the main plot because we as people get distracted from the main plot. We know things are going to be happening. We have the science. We see all these things. But eh, people are doing a dance on TikTok, you know. Uh, but, you know, Kanye West said something stupid. So let's all pay attention to that instead. And that's what really makes this movie such an effective satire to me 
is the way that it's not just the situation that's being satirized. It is us as a people. It is us as a culture that is being completely exaggerated, but laid before us in this film. It's brilliantly done. Yeah, and the, well said. Because one of the, the, the supremely well-done elements of this film, I thought, was just how effectively it depicted the constant, ever-present tendency to get distracted, like like you said, even for someone like Professor Mindy. And so if you're not Professor Mindy, and well, I mean, you know, so so we know Kate Biosky is obviously the most honest character and the most grounded character because she never once loses her sense of like the the absurdity of the situation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, eventually uh, Randall Mindy comes to his senses when he has that meltdown moment on yes. TV. But, but like you say, he gets distracted and just like the ever, like even in the most dire situation moments, like, or even for causes and events that are nominally supposed to be for the spreading of awareness, you know, that concert sequence for me was really interesting because on one hand that like, I found myself feeling genuinely moved by the music in a way, but the the people are waving their phones or like the lighters or whatever. I'm like, Oh my God, this is so surreal. It's like, we're, they're all about to die. And they're just kind of like doing this concert. (laughs) You know, it's almost like even the very thing that's trying to bring awareness, it's almost like it's co-opted. Yeah. By, I don't know, like, you know, it becomes entertainment, right. Or becomes co-opted by corporate interests. Yeah. Well, and then in the in the song, you have the what's his name, DJ Cello, the 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 Kid Cudi character, come out and do do the little the little rap break, and it's completely off the topic of the actual song. So even within the song, you have a distraction <laughs> to keep the sort of commercial appeal of it, or or they can't even keep focused in the span of a four minute, you know, commercial pop song, which is. That, yeah, that's amazing. Because I actually wasn't really even paying attention to his lyrics, but y- yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I mean, of all, and obviously, like the theme of distraction is is a prominent motif in a few of our films. Um, yes. Idiocracy, obviously, I, from what it sounds like, to an extent, in Donbass as well. But mm. I think in, "Don't Look Up" nails it so hard. I mean, mm. it's just like. I can't even imagine a better... It's no wonder people found it so cathartic, right? Because no matter yeah. what our heroes do, and they do everything, the people just go back to distraction in the very end. I mean, even like... So that's that one sort of like stand-in for Fox News or or whatever. There's that one guy who's like... I mean, this is literally like hours before the comet hits. Yeah, the Michael Chitless char- Chitless character, yeah. Yeah, the guy, he's like, oh, the Patriot top story news. right now. Topless urgent care centers. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. And like it never ends, right? The layers upon layers of distraction, and then there's that amazing shot towards the end where there's a rooftop party, mm-hmm. and and then on on the ground floor in the streets, you see like rioting going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, that's where we get like the sort of overt collapse aspects, right? Where society is just breaking down in the face of this impending doom. But it just shows that kind of complete removal from reality with that rooftop party. The rooftop, the rooftop orgy. It's an orgy going on in the rooftop. Yeah, it might be their way of saying like, okay, let's go out with a bang, so to speak. But yeah, <laughs> but it's also kind of just also arguably removed from reality. You know, I mean, the, the most grounded, true to life response is the very end with a family, right, around the table. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
in which they've done everything. There's nothing more to be done at this point. And so what do you do? Well, yeah, you could go party, you can go get drunk, you could, you could whatever, um, join an yeah. orgy, I suppose. But they choose to just relish the small things that people in day-to-day life take for granted that will become jeopardized in a situation of crisis. And I actually didn't mean to bring up the ending so soon in this in, in the discussion of Don't Look Up, but that is just such a beautiful scene where they're just kind of focusing on the small things, which I feel like in a real-life collapse scenario is going to be the kind of thing that will keep people sane, is remembering to come back to the simple pleasures and the small things in life that really matter. Like when you lose all the things that have been distracting you every minute, you know, or like in Wally, when you get disconnected from that computer interface that's 24 yeah. 7, what are you going to do if you're dependent on that? You know, people these days often joke, I can't even be without my smartphone for like 10 minutes, blah, blah, blah. Well, what happens when all that kind of infrastructure breaks down? You know, or you, something yeah. as simple as a power grid failure, for example, which we're seeing right now across the country. Mm. What are you going to do? Well, you got to learn to sort of just remember to appreciate the small, so called boring stuff that really is. The important stuff when you get down to it. And there's that, there's the, I think it's the last line of the, uh, you know, obviously there's the, the post credit scenes, but the last line of the film is when what DiCaprio's character, uh, Mindy says, uh, we really did have it all. And that's such a haunting line to me because he's not just talking about, you know, the distractions and all that. He's talking about, we had the ability to stop this. We really did have the ability to stop this. And we didn't. We squandered that ability. That's one thing that that's one of the reasons why that that movie terrified me so much. And like another friend of mine who, who had a podcast, like after watching this movie the first time, he called me up and he we had a two hour long conversation where he was just so distraught from this film, thinking like nothing he does is of any importance because of of these types of issues. But what struck me with that line is, yeah, like when you look at human development, when you look at what we have been capable of, we have solutions to so many of the problems or we can make solutions to so many of the problems that that we face. We're just not doing it. And that is our choice. And that's what gets me with this film is what happens in the end, the destruction is their choice. The people in this film chose that to happen through their own inaction, through their own hubris, through their own greed, through any number of factors that we see every single day. That's why it's so disturbing. Let's take one of those things you just mentioned. Let's take the greed, because uh, mm-hmm. I think that's a major theme in this film. So obviously there's a, all the distraction that is ever present. And then there's like the excesses of capitalism, right? And, and they're related, obviously, because... The, the kind of the all the sources of distraction ultimately are driven by this need to profit. But so getting to the element of greed and, and the company bash in the film and, and the, what's the guy's the sort of Steve Jobs kind of guy named it? Um, Isherwell, Peter Isherwell. Peter uh, Isherwell, right. Although maybe a better comparison would be Elon Musk. Yes, yes, very Trump, clearly. But, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I mean, talk that- about yeah, wait, go ahead. Really quick, that was the first like laugh out loud 
moment in the film for me is when he's on the stage presenting like the you'll never have to be lonely again bash app and the little girl says you know can i ask a question he's just no and marches off the stage like that was the first laugh out loud for me yeah that character is just so interesting um so hateable obviously but just also yeah. so telling and so true to life i think in this in at least mm-hmm. in a symbolic way with the way I mean, it's like the moment he steps into, you know, when they're launching that mission with Ron Perlman and yes. there's kind of that moment of hope, right, that everyone has. Mm. And the moment he steps into the room, he's like, hello, can I join you? It's mm. like, uh-oh, we know right away that something's going to go wrong. The moment that guy steps into the room and sure enough, he's like, okay, President, um, shoot, what was her last name? President uh, Orlean, Orlean. She's a president, you know, or like maybe called her by first name because they're obviously, you know, very buddy, buddy. He's a big contributor. He gets to call her whatever he wants. Right. I mean, yeah, he's responsible for her success. So he gets that he owns her. I'm sure he gets to call her whatever he wants. But he's like, yeah, let me talk to you. And we're just like, okay, right away, you know what's going to happen in some way. That it's going to be this opportunity, quote unquote, to Mm -hmm. make unimaginable profit. And just that whole sort of the, all the scenes related to like, oh, like, like with Kate DiBiaschi's parents, like, oh, we're for the jobs that the asteroid, not the asteroid, we're for the job that the comet's going to create. And, you know, they're fed that narrative, of course. It, it's just so, so true to life and so telling. Like, I absolutely can see that happening. Again, if we're just take for a moment to take the comment scenario as like on the surface level as a literal truth, not just symbolic, but an actual crisis, I could totally see someone like Elon Musk or somebody say, well, you know, like, actually, this is a great opportunity. And, and even on the symbolic level, that is also happening with respect to climate change, where you already have like a corporation, you know, speaking of corporations causing the problem. And then offering the solution, like we saw in Wally or Idiocracy, here you have, you know, the the, the same thing. Where we're where in real life, just take one example among many. So geoengineering, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you spray sulfate particles into the atmosphere and then it reflects the sun's radiation, and you're going to sort of cool the Earth that way. Well, there are so many things that could potentially go wrong. Um, and I'm not saying that's necessarily just not a viable solution at all. Like maybe, who knows, maybe there's a role for it to play. But I kind of do see this narrative that's kind of starting to be told where it's like, it's almost like people are starting to already assume, well, that's going to be the way we're going to do it. And so in the meantime, we just keep on doing all the same things we're doing and geoengineering will save us. I mean, this is not one of the movies that we're going to talk about, but that's how Snowpiercer starts, man. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's the premise of Snowpiercer is geoengineering gone wrong. And and sure, it might not be like a nuclear, uh, not a nuclear, but a, like a winter wasteland necessarily. But there's so many like feasible things that go wrong, you know, like agriculture, for example, not to mention like seasonal affective disorder multiplied exponentially, you know, like perpetual seasonal affective disorder. Uh, mass suicides because people are so depressed because there's no light. Mm-hmm. There's so many things that could potentially go wrong. And yet I, I guarantee you, we're going to see corporations be like, oh yeah, just trust us. This is going to be, you know, this is going to be the solution. You know, you're going to try to patent all kinds of different technologies. So it's like, it's, it's, we're already seeing what happens in Don't Look Up with, with Bash and, and Isherwell happening mm-hmm. now. It, it's so yeah. real, true to life. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was, there was, uh, what, a couple of weeks ago, there was the uh, successful test of nuclear fission. And I remember reading some 
some material and listening to a couple of podcasts about that. And it, it is a really fascinating technology. But I remember a comment that I read very, just a passing comment saying like, this needs to be nationalized as soon as possible because once corporations get a hold of nuclear fission technology, it's not going to be the solution that people think it is. And when you look at um, Don't Look Up, the missions that are going to succeed are the ones that are, are you know, whether or not people want to say like government is good, government is bad, what it, it has good, it has bad. But in the film, at least, it's preferable to what Bash offers. The nationalized, the internationalized mission is the one that's going to succeed, that should succeed. It's when people, it's when the characters or the, uh, the president of the United States, when President Orlean pulls out of the international mission to destroy the comet, that things go wrong. And something that I didn't notice until rewatching the film now. So they want to mine the comet for its, you know, rare earth materials. And in terms of, you know, who is the, the real world parallel to Isherwell, you know, he comes on stage and the first thing you think is like, oh, he's a Steve Jobs, Bill Gates type. Elon Musk's, Elon Musk's fortune came from his dad's emerald mine. He's a miner. <laughs> and that parallel not, just, just struck me yeah, so, no. so big the second time I watched it. Whoa. Yeah. And no, I think, you know, yeah, like you said, once you get past the sort of immediate surface comparison, I, yeah. I think in essence, Peter Ishawell bears much more of a resemblance to someone like Elon Musk, um, for mm -hmm. sure. Um, and, and even just like, I mean, the, the whole space thing is an obvious one, right? Space yeah, that's true as well. All, all that stuff. And it kind of, well, and, and, you, and you remember the whole speech when Professor Mendy's like, you know, it's not about, yes. about business. He's like, what'd you call me? Did you call me a businessman? You know, and he's like, oh, this is about yeah. human, the future. He's telling this whole narrative. Like, you can tell he's, I mean, to get to that point, he's going to, just like Elon Musk, he's going to have to be a gifted storyteller. And he's like, no, yes. this is about the future of humanity. This is about our destiny and the stars, you know? And that's the same stuff that Elon Musk is saying about like humanity becoming like an intergalactic species. And every time I hear that stuff, I'm like, okay, well, gee, that's great. But why don't we focus, first of all, on not ruining what we already have, right? Because yes. <laughs> what's the point of just like going out there somewhere and just repeating the whole thing like, all over again? Yeah. You know? You get a, you get a, you get a <laughs> find an, another house when you have a perfectly nice house that you can just fix right now. Exactly. Another but, house to trash, the, you know, actually another, another like terrifying aspect is, is in that same, that same scene that you just mentioned where Ishuel says like, I know how you're going to die. I know your entire personality. I have, what is it? Yeah. A thousand, 5,000 data points on all of your habits. I know everything about you. I know you better than you do. And that's something that, again, is absolutely terrifying because every person who's online, every person who has like a social media presence or anything like that has a profile. We all have that consumer profile. We all have that data stored. That's why we get targeted ads from these different things is they think this is something that we're going to like based upon our history of, of interests. It's just terrifying. <laughs> it is absolutely terrifying. And documentaries like The Social Dilemma do a really good job of showing how just even now it's already potentially disastrous. And yet yeah. just imagine when you have technology like the kind that Peter Ishuel has at his fingertips mm -hmm. where, yeah, the algorithms can literally predict how you're going to die, you know, <laughs> even to the point of like, you don't even know, like, what, the, what was the, the dinosaur alien thing, Bronta? Yeah, the, the, the creature doesn't even, the, the, like, it doesn't even have a name. <laughs> and, it know, and it already knows it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. Although on, on a lighter note, with whole data and sort of like, there's that one funny moment that I kind of also laughed out loud where Randall Mindy's son, like they're watching him on TV, and then and there's a whole thing with the DJ Cello and Ariana Grande's yeah, character getting back together or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, there's, and, and his son is like, oh, my, my phone just bought DJ Cello's oh, single really? without asking me. Yes. Bought five copies of it. <laughs> and, then, and he's like, oh, oh, it did it again. That's funny, but I can actually see that happening, you know? I wonder, I wonder if that's a direct, like, direct parallel to the time when, um, was it iPhones or whatever it was, automatically downloaded a YouTube album. But not a YouTube, a U2 album when it came out. The day it came out, all phones immediately downloaded this album for free. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that, yeah. And I remember um, erasing it immediately. I, I, YouTube's yeah. fine, but my phone downloading something... Without my consent, not fine. <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, I can really clearly see that happening in coming years where yeah. our phones know our tastes. I mean, they already know our tastes so well that yeah. I, I can very much see like a setting where we, would you like to let us purchase things for you and you click yes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it just starts buying shit like on its own based on, you know, it's kind of like the same principle as the ads that shows you, to, you know, based on what it thinks you're interested in. It's not a perfect system. You can easily confuse it if you just click around. But still, it's pretty sophisticated. And I can very much see a point, given how exponentially quickly the technology is improving, that it gets to a point where it's almost like, you know, in Minority Report with a pre-cog. But oh, instead God. of pre-cog, it's like pre-purchase. It's kind of like, yeah, we know what you want before you know it. Yes. And it's like, no, no, I don't want it. So no, 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 you do trust us. In 10 days, you're going to really be glad yeah. that we bought it for you. And sure enough, in 10 days, you're like, yeah, I can see that happening. Absolutely. Instead of, instead of like in 10 days, you're going to murder your, your, your neighbor. It's in 10 days, you're going to buy this. So we'll just buy it for you. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's the story. Well, I mean, like in terms of, in terms of, you know, social media right now, something that always, that baffles me is when I see an ad and most of the ads that I, I'm getting lately on like Facebook and whatnot is like, women's clothing and i'm looking at going what did i click on to get this as a possible purchase <laughs> why does facebook think i'm gonna buy women's clothing i'm not you know nothing nothing against guys who wear women's clothing but that's just not what what i do and i've never purchased a piece of woman's clothing in my entire life so, <laughs> so why uh, am well, i getting this ad? maybe uh, maybe it's bash level technology maybe it knows something that's gonna happen yeah. that hasn't happened yet you know, <laughs> I mean, maybe in ten days, I'm just, I'm just really, really going to need a skirt. <laughs> you might want to need to buy a present for someone, or who knows? Well, maybe that is true. Yeah. <laughs> but it's been showing me that for months. I just don't know what I clicked on to get that. But um, one thing before we move off of "Don't Look Up," because you know, I, I've been championing this movie ever since it came out, and in, in discussions with my friends and and all this type of stuff, and a lot of people really hate this movie, and they uh, the criticism is always that it's 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 like a shotgun to the face there's no subtlety to this movie whatsoever and normally subtlety in, in my satire or something that I, I do enjoy but in this one and i wrote it in the review i wrote it in my my uh best of 2021 blurb i i love that this movie is not subtle because we've seen that american society it's made for an american audience we've seen that american society doesn't understand subtlety anymore. You know, we have a big portion of this population who refuses to believe things that are, you, 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 they see it. It's, it's, there's thousands of hours of video of different events happening. And there are still people going, 
no, that didn't happen. No, that's not what it is. No, that's not what they said. No, that's not what they did. It was actually this. It was actually this. There is no room for subtlety anymore. And this film, it's ambitious in that it's a message film and it wants people to understand the message. It wants as many people to see the movie. That's why it's marketed as a big comedy with big stars. That's why there's such broad humor in it. And because they want as many people to see it as possible, they want as many people to absorb the message as possible. There's no room for subtlety in that. And that's something that I do appreciate in this film is that it's trying so hard to be as broad as possible. That's not something I usually admire, but in this case, they, they look at it and they go, this is important. So, you know, there's no room for nuance when we still have half of the American people who, when you give them the science can say, yeah, well, that's not happening or that's a hoax or God will save us or whatever it is they want to say. Any excuse to get away from the, the evidence that's right in front of them. You can't, you can't win an argument with them through nuance. You have to say, yeah. I'm just going to bash you in the face over and over again with this. And I appreciate Sometimes that. Sometimes you just have to, yeah, sometimes you just have to scream on live TV like KTBSP yes. or uh, uh, Professor Mindy. Or Mindy, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The funny thing was I remember when this movie came out, I was uh, a few days later, I think I was, I took a trip up to Seoul and I saw somebody watching that exact Mindy scene on their phone on the subway in Seoul. And the cinephile in me was like, oh, that's no way to watch this movie. <laughs> Don't watch it in chunks on the subway. But the other part, the one that wants people to understand is like, well, I hope that more people are watching that scene and they're, and they're picking it up. Apparently they didn't though, because we still have the same debates going on a year later. <laughs> yeah. Well, <sighs> you know, so the doom like ending of don't look up. Oh, here we go. Could be a natural transition to our next movie. Actually, it could actually be a transition to possibly two other movies on our list. Let me explain how. So the post credit scene in Don't Look Up shows Jonah Hill's character climbing out of the rubble, having apparently survived, right? So now I think all he has to do is find another surviving female of comparable intelligence, and that would be the beginning of idiocracy right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we already talked about that one. <laughs> right, right, right. But it could be the beginning of idiocracy. Or on a more serious note, the ending of Don't Look Up could also be the beginning of our actual next movie, which is The Road from 2009, directed by John Hill, quote, and from which you used the quote that kicked off mm-hmm. our episode. So I kind of just want to start off by saying when I rewatched it, like the first time I saw this movie, I was not collapse aware at all in the sense that the term is usually used. So I thought it was like, Uh, an effective adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel, which I had already read and had enjoyed. And I thought it was like a realistic, you know, dystopian science fiction uh, story. But I wasn't really thinking about like, you know, some of the collapse related themes per se. I just thought it was like a more realistic version of a post-apocalyptic movie, you know, and watching it again. First of all, I was was reminded, I was like, man, this movie is dark. Mm. (laughs) You know, I mean, of all the collapse scenarios on our list, it is the most cataclysmic, the most, um, well, I mean, like, so don't look up, obviously, it is also yeah. extremely catastrophic, but this is like the after of that, right? Because I can't, I mean, you know, the, the film and the novel as well does not specify 
what the catalyst event is, but I can't really think of any situations where the Earth would be that dead, um, short of something like a nuclear world war. But then we don't really see the other elements of nuclear war in, in the road with like mutations and and you know radiation sickness and things like that. So you know, for to sort of fill in the gaps, I think a, a sort of feasible scenario. Even though I know it was not Cormac McCarthy's intention to, and that, like that's not the point of his. That's not what he's interested in. But you could say that like a comet or asteroid, like you know, an extinction level event, could be like the kickoff of the road. But for me, before I pass it off to you, I would say that aside from that, aside from just how sort of bleak it is, it's not. It didn't really offer any particular insight for me uh, in terms of like the social or economic or ecological or political forces that lead to collapse. It's more like a meditation on hope and despair and the whole sort of philosophical question of like when there's nothing left or almost nothing left, what do you do? Is it worth trying to survive or do you just kind of, well, we'll get to this later, but you, do you just essentially do what, you know, Charlie's Theron character does, which mm -hmm. is end it essentially. So the two things that kind of struck me upon this, most recent viewing was one, like, wow, it's really dark. And two, I, I like it, but it's not really kind of insightful in terms of like the other films and showing the process leading up to collapse. It's kind of more like this meditation. You know what I mean? It's like a tone poem. It's like a, it's like a, it's a sort of meditation on despair and hope. But like, what, what, what did you, what do you think? That's a really good point about it being more like a tone poem because, um, yeah, of, of all the films we're talking about, this is, I, I wasn't very taken with this one, to be honest. As you said, again, it doesn't really offer anything particularly different from other films that cover similar territory other than like cannibals. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's more visually affecting than a lot of other similar sort of dystopian films. And it's more atmospheric in that way. But there's not much of a narrative. It's just, you know, the father and son walking, trying to avoid trouble and, and survive. It doesn't go into real, really a cause other than, again, dust. There's a lot of dust everywhere. And it, you know, he, there's the, the carrying the fire theme throughout it and the necessity of, of being the good guy, even though the man obviously does some things that a good guy would not do. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I didn't connect with it as much as I did the other films. Yeah. This might slightly take us off on a tangent, but something I thought was interesting that I was thinking about upon a rewatching, and I actually did think about it while reading the book, actually, which I did before seeing the movie the first time when it came out, Smart. because I am kind of, in some ways, a fan of Cormac McCarthy. I, I do really enjoy his prose, his style, but something that, over the course of reading several of his books and then in The Road, something that I kind of noticed was and it's most prominent in The Road, but it's almost like, it, it was, well, so first of all, female characters don't really play a prominent part in any of his, any of the books that I've read. I mean, maybe yeah. some other books that I haven't read, but they're not prominent even when they appear. Yeah, even when they appear, I mean, it's almost like Clint Eastwood or something. It's like even when they appear, they're just kind of like <laughs> these sort of decorative yeah. kind of, you know, things. But then what struck me about The Road, both when I was reading it and upon this most recent viewing, 
was, on one hand, the character of the mom, Charlie's Theron's character. I mean, it, it is kind of in some ways like a very striking portrait of this bear. And I feel like would be present in such a yeah. apocalyptic world if that were to occur. But and especially with the way these characters kind of given like these archetypical names, you know, like the man, the boy, <laughs> and then the woman. So, it, so it's almost like I get this feeling like, like women are not reliable. Um, you can't mm-hmm. trust them. They're going to fall apart. They're going to give up. And it comes down to the good old man, the dad, to, you know, lead the boy on this journey to safety. And I'm not saying that absolutely that's what it is, but it's a potential interpretation. And again, coming from someone who has read a number of Cormac McCarthy's book, and again, I I am on the whole a fan. I do think he writes Mm -hmm. some very beautiful prose. But yeah, there is this element that I found kind of interesting and kind of problematic. Um, I was just wondering what you thought of it. Yeah, I I haven't read as much McCarthy as I should because I know he's an important writer. And I did study him in uh, I took a graduate school class immediately after graduating undergrad where we were supposed to read one of his books and I couldn't find a copy of it. <laughs> but I know that he's a remarkable writer. I know as his prose is, is stark and very like striking and harsh and good. And I think sometimes he gets a little too caught up in, in, in his brutality, but yeah, you're right. I looking again at the, the cast list, um, man, boy, woman, veteran, veteran's wife, thief, old man, and gang member is, is what the names of the main characters are. And if you think about it though, the, the wife or the woman goes out and, you know, gives up, the veteran's wife, the only other real like female character, just follows her husband around and takes care of the kids while the husband does the the hunting and the gathering. So that is an interesting observation that um, yeah maybe might be uh, might be something in in McCarthy's uh, way of thinking. Yeah, I think we both kind of feel like we don't really need to spend that much time on this film. But there's one other thing that I want to ask you about what you thought, uh, and, and and that is, you know, in the credits when the credits are rolling. In the background, you can hear like sounds, like these mundane, everyday civilization sounds, like cars, lawnmower, people talking. What did you make of that? To be honest, I turned it off when the credits started. <laughs> I watched it very late at night, and I needed to sleep for the next day. But yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't notice that part. It's, it's, I didn't. It didn't stand out to me as much as the beginning of the end credits of Children of Men, where you hear the children laughing. So yeah, I got I got to the end of the film and I was like, no. Oh. The main takeaway, honestly, the main takeaway I had from the road was life sucks after the apocalypse. <laughs> That's what I got from it. I was like, yeah, life sucks after the apocalypse. Well, very quickly regarding the credits uh, and, and the uh-huh. sounds, I just kind of took it as you know, again, sort of like with "Don't Look Up" at the end when they're around the table and just kind of relishing the small things, family life, mm-hmm. you know, a good meal conversation. The the sounds seem to, for me, just indicate well, again, the just things we sort of take for granted, right? Mm-hmm. And and the things that, not that I I by any means a believer that things can just stay the same. I actually I believe the opposite that we need degrowth is is what I mm-hmm. believe, but if we were to act collectively with purpose and with with a united will, I do think there are 
aspects of the kind of lifestyles many of us get to enjoy in the first world, in the industrialized world, we can conserve some aspects of it. But we have to, we would have to really act now. In fact, there are plenty of arguments, very good arguments, that the opportunity is already passed, that whether we like it or not, there's going to be inevitable degrowth kind of forced upon us, right? Like we had our chance to voluntarily kind of curtail our consumption and our infinite growth, and we lost it, and now it's going to be forced upon us. And so it was just kind of like this sort of bittersweet moment with these, you know, sounds of what sounded like a sort of like a suburban street, you know, like, oh, Johnny, come home and eat dinner or whatever it was. I don't remember, but just the kind of stuff that, you know, again, humanity just kind of abdicates its right to essentially by its inaction or, you know, again, I don't know. Nobody knows what is the cause of, of the cataclysm in the road, but whatever it is, presumably there's something that people could have done. I feel like on the whole, I did like it a bit more than you in the sense that simply, I don't know, I just kind of, again, as kind of like a tone poem or like a meditation, Mm -hmm. I found it to have sort of like a dark, stark beauty to it. But again, no particular sort of insight in terms of like the process of collapse. So um, it sounds like we're both pretty good with just like moving on. Moving on. To the next (laughs) film. Okay. I'm, I'm eager to coin flip now. I'm eager to see how you how you transition. Which one? You okay. Well, here it is. So so far, <laughs> the films we have discussed depict potential future scenarios. But I also wanted to have a couple of films on our list that examine aspects of collapse that have already occurred, or have been occurring and are still occurring. And so with that. And this is uh, uh, a title that I kind of suggested while we were putting our list together. But it's 1993's Menace to Society, directed by the Hughes brothers. And I can imagine that some people's immediate reaction would be like, what? well, what place does that movie have on a <laughs> list of films about collapse? And so um, if you're cool with it, I think I just kind of want to start off by explaining some of my thoughts on why I do think in some ways, at least, it is a film about collapse. Are, are you okay with that? Absolutely. You have a great explanation. Yeah. Okay. When you go on some of these discussion groups, uh, for example, the collapse or Reddit, you have a very mixed audience, yeah, and there's a lot of people coming to it um, who are n- relatively new to the topic. And, e- and even for people who have been with you know in the group for a while, there is sometimes this kind of this presumption that we're not in a state of collapse. And then eventually we're going to reach a state of collapse. It's like this kind of end or final state. And that can be a form of collapse. It can certainly be like a a state that you arrive at. But as many uh, writers and thinkers on the topic have pointed out, collapse is also a process. And as a process, it's very unevenly distributed, right? So like there's this great quote by William Gibson, the great science fiction writer who once said, the future is already here. It's just not distributed evenly or, or something like that. And I would borrow that quote, but replace the word the future with collapse. So collapse is already here, but it's just not distributed evenly. And so, you know, um, when people do point that out, they often will talk about other countries, right? So like Afghanistan or Sri Lanka and how they're already in a state of collapse. But I would go further. I would say it's not even like unevenly distributed across the globe. It's also unevenly distributed here within the U.S. and just like historically all throughout the U.S.'s history. So that's one way. And the other, and another way that I feel like this movie does belong on a list about films of collapse is that in thinking about collapse as a process, when you think about 
what the process will feel like from the viewpoint of everyday people's experiences, you know, and what challenges they're going to face. There'll be things like poor economic prospects, right? No jobs, massive wealth inequality, just massive inequality in general. Uh, we talked about fascism with with children of men. So like over-policing as the result of a fascist state, trying to forcefully maintain order, for example. Lack of opportunity, lack of a future, no reason to hope. You know, you know, many things that young people involved in like the climate movement, for example, are struggling with now. Well, these are exactly the same things that segments of the population have already been experiencing for quite some time. And, you know, the collapse that I'm talking about here might not be for like ecological reasons, but certainly for societal and political reasons. Uh, so that's another way that menace to society, in my mind, depicts a version of collapse. And, and the third way has to do with lost potential. So, you know, there's the expression that people sometimes talk about like brain drain, right? When, when like a country mm -hmm. loses its talented workforce or people like the educated um, among a population like, you know, immigrates. And so that country loses their most educated and gifted people. Well, we actually know that that's kind of a factor of a decline of a society is when, they, when it loses people who, are, who have certain kinds of skills and have certain kinds of education. Well, imagine if there's a version of brain drain that's not really a brain drain, but is taking place here at home. And it's because too many people are not getting access to the opportunities to develop their potential and, and, and get a, and get a good education and have like, you know, like job prospects and, and a future that they can look forward to, you know, and especially with problems like climate change and all the many, many, many crises we have now. We need all hands on deck. We need everyone meeting their potential, getting a good education, getting the opportunities that people take for granted who are more privileged, but that many people don't have, right? We have seen this happening in disadvantaged communities. And so there are actually many, I could have easily chosen any number of other films, but I think the reason I chose this film, it's more like timing because you know how Netflix has that thing where sometimes you're like, oh, this movie will be available until December, whatever. So like I was like scrolling through Netflix. I'm like, oh shit, Menace to Society. I love this movie. Oh, it's <laughs> going to be available until December 20, whatever. It's like, oh, I better rewatch this. And yeah, it's just, it's so striking for me how here is a form that people don't usually think about when they talk about collapse, but that has been going on, is still going on, and is like a portion of the population that is already experiencing the same kind of end result that we think about when we think about collapse, like no prospect of a future, no hope, you know, so you fall into uh, nihilism and violence. It's, it's already been happening. And, and mm -hmm. I think there's this kind of privilege bias that we see in, even within collapse aware communities, that, that something like this is not collapse. Oh, but like climate change is collapse. No, I, I, I argue this is also collapse. It's, 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 that's my, that's, that's my spiel. You're, no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's sort of the same result that people talk about without the same cause. And when you're talking about issues, most of the time, it's the result that is, a, that is the concern, not the cause of that result. So yeah, the effects that, that are shown in this film and the effects, and the, the effects that we know are happening in some, in some neighborhoods right now and have been happening. This was made in 93, I think. Neighborhoods are still this way for the last, well, 30 years now. It's unbelievable. And in terms of, as you said, there are a number of films that, that, uh, 
that deal with this topic. I think it was the, the, the year before, the same year, or right around the same time was Boys in the Hood. But I saw that movie a long time ago. I don't remember it super well, but watching Menace to Society as compared to other inner city movies, this one struck me as a lot less sensationalized. It's stylistic, but it's not super sensationalized like a lot of others, other ones are. And it's not sort of an, uh, a big plot pushing it along. It's yeah. much more slice of life or as close as, as it can get. And it was a good choice for me. I hadn't seen this movie before. I had heard about it a lot, but I hadn't seen it before. So I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know that as well, that there are ways to look at this movie and sort of in terms of uneven distribution. Like I saw parallels in this to Goodfellas. Yeah. And Goodfellas, of course, has a lot more opulence. It's a very different type of crime, whereas this is the more ground level, the the lower level, you know, crime where you don't see the distribution of wealth, where the, where the wealth is not distributed to this section of criminals the way it is to those in Goodfellas. But a lot of times the sort of mentality behind it is is similar. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned Goodfellas because the Hughes brothers um, in mm -hmm. interviews have said that, you know, like the films of Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, Brian De Palma, like, you know, Scarface, like these crime films have been a great influence on them. And when you watch Manage to Society, like stylistically, you can see like some of those influences, right? But in yes. substance, it's very different from like this glamorized sheen that you see on a film like The Godfather, for example. Mm -hmm. It's so much, like you said, like ground level, right? And in some ways, as I was watching it most recently, I was just kind of like, I was like, this almost in some ways feels like a dystopian science fiction film of like a failed state, you know? And mm. like some of the same elements, right? The over-policing, for example, or just like danger at every turn. Like you never put your guard down. You're always in danger. Just kind of like that sense of constant impending doom is mm. even though it's 90s LA, it's almost in some ways felt like a dystopian story to me. Yeah, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be hard to to picture this. I don't know if you ever saw the uh the the film Elysium, but it wouldn't be hard to picture this as like a neighborhood in that, you know, in, in that type of society. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm I'm ashamed to say I have not yet seen Elysium. I need to mm -hmm. and I really want it because I know that like class is a big top is a big theme in it, which is yeah, it, definitely, especially nowadays, a big concern of mine. So I need to watch it. But but um It kinda doesn't doesn't develop that theme quite enough. It should go more into it. It goes a little too much into the action movie part of it. Oh, okay. Okay. I want I wanted a more I wanted a film that examined the class more like like District Nine did, but yeah. So right. I was, well, I was just thinking District 9, actually, which was brilliant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to mention as well in, in terms of, of this film, um, you mentioned the, the, the class as the collapse aspect of it. I wanted to say class and collapse at the same time. Um, but this film does a, a really good job in looking at sort of achievement. You know, if you look at the character um, Kane, Everybody congratulates him so much for making it to, to 18 years old and for making it out of high school, which for a lot of people is not that much of an achievement. But in his neighborhood, it is. 
And in the na- in neighborhoods like the one depicted here, that is an achievement and it should be celebrated by people. But that's something that in terms of collapse, like the things that we look at as achievements, if you look at the society where education is not something that is prioritized by most people and a lot of things that many people would consider basic aren't available to them, things like this will become a priority. Things like this would become something to be applauded more than it is now. And that's something that struck me when watching this was like his entire life. Kane, Kane is only what, like in this film, it takes place over the course of like a year or two years, something like that. He's, he's a kid. He's like 18, 19 years old through this entire movie. That's boggling to me. Yeah. And something else that I kind of noticed in the films of the Hughes brothers in general, maybe not later on, but certainly in, in the early, like the first few films, um, also <laughs> in, in Dead Prez. Um, oh, right. They did Dead Prez. I can't remember who did Dead Prez. Yeah. Have you seen Dead Prez? No, film? I haven't seen that. I haven't seen Dead Presidents. Or is it Dead Presidents no. or Dead Prez? I can't. I can't remember. For uh, sure, Dead Prez um, is the is the hip hop group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorite hip hop groups. They're great. <laughs> they're they're a good group. <laughs> yeah. So in Dead Presidents as well, and and maybe partially in Menace to Society, or it could be projecting. But there's a kind of critique, I think, of of capitalism in the sense that when you have this capitalist structure and system, where like. The things that are valued societally and the things that are passed on, basically money, right? Material success, mm-hmm. profit, power, status. And then you create an environment in which those things are beyond many people's reach. That's true. What more, what, like, what do you expect like, yeah. people to do than to resort to crime? I mean, there was this great debate that I watched on YouTube recently between Cornell West and Candace Owens. And uh, there was a section oh, where they were God. talking. Did you see it? <laughs> no, but like half of that I can imagine listening to for hours. The other half I can't imagine yeah. listening to for more than about yeah. five seconds. <laughs> yeah. Well, to her credit, she kind of, I think, toned down some of her, shall we say, more um, uh, insufferable aspects. But okay. uh, uh, so it was a more or less civil debate. And but okay. there, was, there was a section where they were talking about police violence against unarmed black men. Yeah, And then there's a point where Candace Owens kind of says, well, you know, you you talk about that, but then you're ignoring the other truth, which is that the vast majority of violence committed against young black men are by other black men. And Cornell West, for the most part, did a good job in that debate, but he just totally, I feel like, did not address what he should have when she said that, which is, oh, okay, well, you want to talk about violence of black men towards other black men? Well, let's talk about the systemic reasons for that. Why does that occur? Mm. I mean, it's just like that that would be the most ridiculous, absurd, racist implication possible if you were to say like somehow it's just uh, some fundamental flaw, right? Yeah. But neither of them, I mean, I mean, certainly not Candace Owens and predictably so, but even Cornel Wells, I feel like lost an opportunity to say, well, okay, well, let's talk about why that happens, you know, mm. and especially because he's a very outspoken critic of capitalism. So I feel like, you yes. know, I... I don't, I mean, again, I think like he did overall did a good job, but mm-hmm. this this film I feel like is kind of like this subtle critique. It becomes more pronounced in Dead Presidents, I feel like, because it's kind of a similar situation where this veteran comes back from Vietnam and just like you know he's kind of spat upon as many veterans were, and just the fact that he was also a black man just kind of made it even harder. And what's pretty much the thing that 
people attribute value to? What is the indicator of success of what your mm-hmm. value as a human being is in, in our society? It, it's quote unquote success. It's money, right? And so it's like in that film too, we see a sort of similar arc of where the character kind of turns to crime. And I won't give away, you know, that's a separate movie. It's not part of our list. And so, you know, <laughs> we can have spoilers for our list today, but I'm not going to give a spoiler for Dead Presidents. But yeah, I feel like the Hughes brothers have like this kind of ongoing, in their early films, this sort of ongoing critique of capitalism. I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thing that I kind of feel like um, I might be projecting onto them. But no, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Because if you look at Menace to Society, one of the, one of the main crimes we see Kane do is, you know, he, as soon as he gets a car, he wants a set of rims and he's not going to pay for them. He's going to steal them. But that's like a symbol to him. That's a symbol of status it is having, you know, shiny things on, on the wheels of your car. And that's a function of capitalism. That's a function of materialism. And yeah, it's, it's a lot of, because so much of society is out of reach for him. This is something that he can achieve as a symbol of his own status is that exactly yeah very well said um but i like to uh, see that presidents i've heard good things about that presidents just never got around to it i really like it um it's sadly uh, the yeah, first I, sadly the first hughes brothers movie i ever watched was from hell <laughs> oh yeah that's their later sort of era yeah not a great movie <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I feel like the Book of Eli was like the sort of bridge where they go from like these early critical films that sort of examine society and injustice. And Mm -hmm. then and then you get the Book of Eli, which is like, you know, conventional sort of post-apocalyptic film. And then you just have like these kind of like Hollywood-ish kind of things. Um, Wasn't it their last movie? I thought that was their last movie. From Hell? No, uh, Book of Eli. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm getting the chronology wrong. But uh, yeah, I very well. That was the last movie um, together. That was our last movie together. Oh, okay. Huh. Okay. But oh. yeah, you're not you're not wrong about them doing a lot more commercials though. Which I, you know, I understand. But uh, I, I would my favorite two movie films of theirs are their first two, you know, Menace to Society and Dead Presidents. So I kind of wish they would just sort of stayed on that kind of track. That's where they're sort of covering I think that's what I think that's when they were doing more personal things. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, speaking of staying on a track. Our next film is a bit of a road film. And although you could say, I guess you could say the road is also kind yeah. of a road film <laughs> in a way, right? But yeah, so this one is, it's our one sort of old classic black and white film on the list. Uh, it's 1940s, The Grapes of Wrath, obviously based on the novel by John Steinbeck, directed by John Ford. And I must say, cinematography by the great, legendary Greg Tolan, who also did the cinematography for Citizen Kane, which, I mean, like, I think you and I both feel like it's what Citizen Kane is one of the best films ever made. Yeah, Um, it's a textbook. Yeah, but I think Greg Tolan is a big reason. I mean, yes, uh, I think Orson Welles was a genius, but Greg Tolan, I think, had a big role to play in that. And uh, I think a good documentary, actually, for people to watch is the 1992 documentary Visions of Light, which... It's just in general about cinematography, but includes like clips of Greg Tolan's works. And you can see uh, why he's such a revered cinematographer. And in this film, The Grapes of Wrath, you can also see why he's such a respected filmmaker. Because, I mean, there's so many beautiful shots. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I thought just from beginning to end with the opening shot with like that desolate field or road or whatever it was. And then and just the use of light 
and shadow mm-hmm. in this film. But before getting into the stylistic stuff, I, I guess maybe I'll just quickly kick off this discussion with, yeah, this is also like, in my mind, sort of like a historical example of collapse where it might not be, you know, the collapse, right? Mm-hmm. But it's certainly a collapse in the sense that you have this incredibly bleak intersection of, on one hand, the Great Depression, and on the other hand, the Dust Bowl, uh, another documentary that people should watch. Actually, it's a great companion film, this movie, which is the Ken Burns documentary, The Dust Bowl. Because, you know, when I was reading about The Dust Bowl in like my history textbooks, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this like, okay. But when I was watching this documentary, it was really educational because I was like, wow, I didn't realize it was that apocalyptic an event. I mean, it was a terrifying documentary. I mean, it was like some of the scenes and pictures well, not really scenes because they weren't there, but like pictures they were showing and the things that people were saying and their testimonies. Oh my God, it was like an apocalypse, what they lived through. And yeah, this kind of intersection of an ecological disaster on one hand with the soil erosion and the Great Plains area becoming completely, the ground just becoming completely infertile and blowing up these enormous dust cyclones, right? At the same time, this crushing poverty as a result of the Great Depression, and these two things intersecting and overlapping and amplifying each other. I mean, it was a bleak, bleak time that the more I think about it and the more I sort of imagine myself living in it, I mean, my God, it would feel like an apocalypse. But yeah, so that's kind of like my rationale for the inclusion of this film. And I really do think like some of the events that we see in it, the experiences of these everyday people is kind of going to be like, what I would envision in a future form of collapse with like, because what, what are they essentially doing? They're migrating, right? They're, they're going yes. from a place that is no longer inhabitable, seeking uh, greener pastures, so to speak. But, you know, migrations aren't just going to be from border to border, country to country, like in, in tro- like, you know, shoulder to men. It's going to be within the U.S. from state to state mm-hmm. as well, as resources become scarce, as some areas become like destroyed by, ravaged by drought. You know, you're going to have populations moving from, like, for example, the drier states to places where, you know, it's still possible to have agriculture and there's going to be like crowding. So you see some of, you know, like when when the, the Jode family is moving to California, you see some of this prejudice, right? Some of this kind of like, oh, you outsiders go back where you came from kind of thing, right? Yeah. Which I thought was really interesting. And then I want to pass it on to you, but, it, but remind me to come back to a question that you raised in our emails, which I thought was really interesting, I do want to address, which is like, man, why is John Steinbeck considered like this quintessential American writer, given all these themes? I actually kind of have like what I think is a possible answer to that. But but why don't you share some of your thoughts on the film? Well, along along the same lines of the question I mentioned about Steinbeck, there's also John Ford. John Ford is considered like by, you know, like my grandfather's generation, you know, the searchers and all the John Wayne movies and stuff, the sort of quintessential American and and but we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah, you mentioned a good point that this is very similar to Children of Men in the way that the, the immigrants between the states are handled. But what's curious to me is you mentioned sort of the intersection of ecological disaster and financial collapse from, from the Great Depression. And yet something that you see in this movie is the banks are still moving in on this land. The land is unusable. But the bank still has to have it. The bank is still like, but it's ours. It's our unusable land. So even if it's not something that they that they would care about or they would even conceivably do anything with, 
because they can't, it's still like, no, it's ours. We still have to have it. You know, we're still going to knock your house down, even though it's completely unusable, but it's our unusable land. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, I didn't know anything about the Dust Bowl before, before we talked about this movie. I think, I think I mentioned like that sounds to me like a, a championship football game for, a, for the universities. <laughs> but then going in and, and reading, you know, reading about this and reading more about, I read Steinbeck novels. I never knew that this is what the book was about. I never knew it was along these lines. So it was good to see that. In terms of collapse, absolutely. You know, I think when most people talk about collapse, they're talking about full society. And what we've addressed with, with this film and with Menace to Society is that collapse is experienced on the individual level. So even if this is not a major apocalypse, it is for these people. You know, for a long time, I've had this idea that every individual life is its own little world because we experience the world as individuals. In a sense, our brains contain the entire world because that's the only way that we experience them. That's the way that we know it exists is our experience. And for these people, their world is collapsing through the dust bowl and through the bank coming in and knocking them down. At the beginning of the film, when they're being kicked off their land, they're saying like, this is my home. This is the land I'm going to defend. Even if that's just unusable piece of, you know, piece of property that's, that's covered in, you know, particles and nobody can even breathe. No, this is the only world I know. This is the world I'm going to defend. Anything outside of that is disaster, is essentially death to their world. Yeah, very much so. Um, that's a great point as well. And speaking of like air you can't breathe, I mean, you, you have that whole scene with like that guy who was about to, you know, bulldoze down the house and he's like this big tractor and he's wearing this gas mask. And it was kind of like, oh, as I was watching it, I was like, if you just like sort of pause this moment, it's almost like something out of Mad Max Fury Road or something, you know, like this big machine, like this, like this monstrous looking machine and this guy wearing this mask, you know, which actually is, is historically accurate because as I was watching the Ken Burns documentary, and again, it is showing all these still photos, also even like from a COVID perspective, right? It's like, wow, it's so mm -hmm. interesting to see all these photos of all these people wearing masks because they mm -hmm. had to, because they couldn't breathe the air because there was so much dust everywhere, right? People were literally getting sick and getting like lung infections because they were constantly breathing this stuff. I mean, the, some of the descriptions of people of how they coped with this constant, never-ending dust was just incredible. I mean, living out in Korea, which, you know, you were in Seoul as well, where the fine dust somewhere gets, sometimes gets so bad, you know, people in China wearing, you know, masks every day before COVID because the air is so bad. I had to, I remember, like, I think it was within the first six months that I was in the city where I am now, there was the uh, air quality index was at 999. And I already had to wear a mask for, for COVID protocols, but I wore a full on like respirator. I looked like something out of, out of the, the, the miniseries Chernobyl. I wore that to class because the air was just that bad. So this is something that's also happening. <laughs> like, yeah, the effects of dust cannot be overstated. I think if there's one, if there's one theme that these movies have taught us, it's that dust is the enemy and must be destroyed. No, just joking. In addition to that theme, we here again, even in this film, see these other themes that we've seen in our other films. 
like the greedy capitalists, the mm-hmm. the the police brutality, um, mm-hmm. police overreach. You know, again, it's just amazing seeing in a film that on the surface a lot of people wouldn't like immediately associate with you know a, a collapse or like post apocalyptic or whatever. But this a lot of the same elements of like a, an apocalypse or a dystopian state are present yeah. in this film. They, I, I, it's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the keen farm in this movie is, is basically, by and large, it's the same thing. They provide the housing, they provide all the food that they have to pay for, and you know, they, they work for this, this farm that controls their wage and what they spend that wage on. It's complete corporate control in that sense. Yeah, I mean, like, like you know, the, you try to go for a walk in the evening. Where are you going? You know, yeah. it's like it, it was just completely this dystopian. And I, I want to come back to the whole like John Steinbeck uh, being like a classic American writer thing. But before I do, what did you think about this film just on a technical level? Because as I was watching it, for me, it's not just these themes which were so hard hitting. I just thought, wow, and it's not surprising, you know, given like the talent involved, right? John Ford, Greg Tolan, as mentioned, and the cast. Obviously, um, you know, um, Henry Ford is a legend. Well, what did you just think of it on an aesthetic and technical level? As you mentioned, it's an absolutely beautiful film. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's there's just something about, you know, filming in black and white now doesn't, it can, it can look great, but it doesn't quite have the same feeling as people who were native to that, to that technology and knew how to best use it and best sort of exploit the, uh, the power within that limitation. It's obviously it's very old, so it's staged in very different ways. The way the characters, you know, stand within the scene, the way that they move within the scene, it's still very theatrical. But coming back to it, technically, it looks great. It's filmed beautifully. There's the thing with older films where a lot of the characters will tend to sort of monologue, talk a bit longer than than characters now will. But they do make the most of those in this in this film. Like they don't feel like longer monologues. They're they're necessary. Um, actually, I just want to quickly make a correction. I said the the lead actor was Henry Ford, so I kind of combined the name <laughs> of wondering. Henry Fonda <laughs> and John Ford, which is the director. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so Henry Fonda was obviously uh, uh, Henry Fonda is very good. It, like he's, it's he carries this sort of this sort of menace, but he's still likable enough because you know he's coming out of out for the crime of murder, and so there is the inherent menace of like, oh, he's killed someone before and he'll kill people. He, he could kill people again, but he's still very likable as a lead, and that's a remarkable performance. And as you mentioned, with like a, with these old films, there's a different kind of sensibility, a different kind of set of aesthetics. But within that framework, I thought mm-hmm. the cast did a, a wonderful job. Uh, Jane Darwell, who plays the mom, oh, what a presence, you know. Jim Casey. Jim Casey's great. Or that character is great. Yeah. Was it uh, John Carradine? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yeah. Good character. And, and stand-up guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, I would want to be on his side. <laughs> so I would want to be on my side if I were to be undergoing this particular ordeal. So yeah, coming back to this whole issue mm-hmm. of, as you pointed out in a, in a sort of email conversation we were having, okay, so it's clearly you know like pro-labor, pro-worker, yeah. anti-capitalist in some ways, yeah. anti-police. And yet John Steinbeck, 
is considered like this quintessential American writer. And I was thinking about that when you brought it up. And I think, and I could be wrong, or could, there could be more to this answer than, than what I'm suggesting. But I think part of it is he was writing at a time, you know, you know so like The Grape's Wrath came out very shortly after the end of the Great Depression. So it was like right around mm-hmm. the same time. And he was writing at a time when I feel like in general, I mean, you had guys like FDR in the White House, right? Um, mm-hmm. Someone who by today's standards... People would be foaming at the mouth saying, oh, my God, we got a freaking commie in socialist who's, yeah, as president or, you know, so he was writing at a different time where even though there was very much like, you know, there have been different periods of the Red Scare throughout American history, but certainly there were anti-communist elements in society. But in general, someone who was that strongly pro-labor, pro-worker, I don't think at at that time would have had as much of a like a crazy reaction uh, as you hmm. would nowadays and you know how you know so we've talked about like the canon before like the great american canon of literature i think once you sort of have like this canon a lot of people i mean let's face it nowadays people don't really in general don't read as much yes, as before sadly. and that's partly because we have so many different choices of media and so many just things in general which is understandable but it is also true that generally speaking People read less, I think. There are, of course, ex- exceptions. So a lot of this I, sense of John Steinbeck being like a classic American writer, I think it's just kind of received passively. You know, I think people actually read his stuff and they saw just how strongly pro-worker, pro-labor he is and pro-socialist. It would be surprising. I mean, certainly I was surprised by the extent of it. Uh, there are other writers too, the same thing, like Upton Sinclair, Jack London, Dalton Trumbo was more of a screenwriter, but he was also a famous writer. These guys were all socialists, but they were canonized at a time when I think there was more kind of a sense of open-mindedness about the range of things that a great American writer, quote unquote, could be writing about. And as long as the literature itself was good, you know, I think it was kind of still accepted to some degree. Whereas now, again, if John Steinbeck were to appear on the scene now and, <laughs> and publish something like Grapes of Rod, I think there'd be like, It'd be polarized, obviously, you know? Yeah. Uh, so I think that's part of it. There may be more to it, but I think that's part of why he's still kind of considered like this quintessential American writer. I think it's just because a lot of people just haven't read his stuff and it's just passively received from the reputation that you get from like your American literature class in high school or college. And I, I mean, that's kind of my take. What, what, what do you think? No, that's actually a really, really good point. Like you mentioned those, those Upton Sinclair and the other two writers, like those are names that I, oh, Jack London and don't know the other one. Um, you mentioned those and those are all writers that I'm familiar with and have an idea of the type, you know, their, their quote unquote genre, but I've never read any of their, <laughs> any of their work. I just pulled up on, on another screen that I have going over here, all of John Steinbeck's books. I've read one of these. And yet I know the titles of so many of the other ones. I actually don't know what they're about, but I have an idea because of the image in my head from like of mice and men from watching grapes of wrath. I have an idea of what I think they're about. They could be something completely different. It's that's a really good point about people being canonized without reading them. There was a, I I remember another, an ex-girlfriend of mine was a big, you know, was a literature student and I had never read The Great Gatsby. And we started talking about this. At the time, I had never read it. I've read it since like twice. It's a great book. 
But I said like, oh, I always thought it was about a flying car. <laughs> she was like, what? No, it's, it's not, you're thinking like chitty, chitty, bang, bang or something like that. But that's a really good point that most people build up an image of something, especially something old like this without actually having experienced it. It's just, it takes on the perceived values of the culture that it's become a part of. Yeah, imagine like, so a lot of John Ford's films, you know, like mm-hmm. a lot of them star John Wayne, they're Westerns, mm-hmm. probably would be pretty well received by a contemporary conservative audience, so long as they can get past the sort of old aesthetics of a classic yeah. film. But this one, you know, if they were to see this one, despite the fact that it's made by John Ford, yeah, yeah, I wonder how they would react, you know. It's so pro-immigrant and so, you know, anti-corporate and pro-government. It's a very socialist movie. It's interesting. Going back to the idea of, you know, things sort of losing their meaning later on when they're just sort of adopted by, you know, picture, you know, there's the videos of people at like conservative political rallies dancing around to rage against the machine. (laughs) Right. Or, or the village people, you know, (laughs) so funny. Well, I mean, Ronald Reagan using Born in the USA as his, as his campaign theme when, when Springsteen was like, can you realize what that song is about? And in fact, I think Springsteen also wrote, I mean, who was obviously very sort of pro-worker, pro-working class. I, I think he wrote a song that was actually based on, wasn't there a song about like Tom Joad, the ghost of Tom Joad or something? Was that Tom um, yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I'm actually looking it up right now. Yeah. The ghost of Tom Joad, song by Bruce Springsteen. Oh, wow. Tom Joad obviously being the Henry Fonda character in yeah. Graves of Wrath. <sighs> but yeah. So any final thoughts on Grapes of Wrath? Um, not just that. It was so much more than I expected it to be, to be honest. You know, I it, it wasn't because like I said, I had an image of Steinbeck from American literature classes. And this was much more than that. It was it. it feels a lot more vital than I initially thought, a lot more timely. Vital is a good way of putting it. And I'm really happy you liked it because, yeah, I really love this film. And speaking of really loving film, we have a really good list here. What would be your top three choices from this list and why? Give me a moment. I'm going to look over the list again. Okay. Um, Let's see. Top three of this. Children of Men. Because as we mentioned, it's something you can watch on like the, the thematic level. It's something you can watch on an artistic level. It's something you can watch on a societal level. There's just so much going on with it. It's so beautifully done. Um, I would say Wally. Wally is such fun and it's subversive in the sense that it is a, a, a children's film and it is a fun little piece of animation. It's beautifully done, but there's also the much darker aspect of it or the much more critical aspect of it. So it's another film that you can watch on, on many different levels. And the other one would be, I'd say the look up for the reasons that we've, we've, we've talked about and that I've written about extensively. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be my top three of, of these. What about you? What, are you? what is your top three of, of, of this list? Yeah, well, first of all, great choices. And um, two of them, overlap with mine. You can probably guess which ones they are. My first choice, yes, Children of Men would be one of them. Mm-hmm. And 
just because, yeah, like aesthetically, technically, it's a brilliant achievement. Again, if someone were to ask me of the 10 films on the list, which kind of, do you, well, maybe Contagion as well, but which do you kind of foresee as being like a very plausible scenario happening in the future? I mean, the other thing we forgot to mention was I think Children of Men takes place in like 2027 or something like that, which yes. is not so far away. And again, for all the reasons I mentioned while we were talking about it, I, I kind of do see it as being highly, highly plausible. The next one would also be Don't Look Up, again, for the same, all the many reasons we uh, talked about during our discussion and other reasons also that we didn't have time to cover. And my third choice, my third choice would, would be different. Uh, for me, it would be The Grapes of Wrath. And, and just mm. again, because a similar reason as Children of Men, because for this one, it's not that I, well, actually both. I Not only did it actually already happen, I can easily imagine something similar occurring at some unknown point in the future with a, a collapsing economy on one hand, overlapping with a simultaneous extreme severe ecological crisis. And yes. with those two things overlapping and the effects of that, and obviously, you know, like the, the story takes place in a different time period, different technology. So that stuff would all be different, but like, people leaving their homes right that mm -hmm. that they've come to love for generations and yet they leave it all behind looking because their survival is at stake and then all the things they run into along the way the struggles the barriers the prejudice and um you know yeah so for those reasons and and also for because i also think that the film is a technical achievement certainly for its time yes just very well made that would be my third choice is, is the grapes of wrath that's a, that's a good inclusion on your list. I'm glad it's it's because my list is all like major Hollywood studio releases. <laughs> I feel kind of bad for that. <laughs> At first time, it was kind of a Hollywood uh, release, but um, but certainly nowadays, yeah, it would be considered. That's true. Uh, uh, yeah, classic. But it's, uh, it's not just another. It's not just another like contemporary big budget. Thing. Right. Right. And I'm glad we got to include like one classic film on our list, one animation. Yes. You know, so we got one comedy <laughs> or two comedies. Um, <laughs> two comedies. Uh, so a nice little mix. And Jess, why don't you at this time share with us some things that you're working on now, some places that obviously aside from your reviews on pop mythology, which again, I highly urge people to check out. Um, just anything you want to plug and promote. I'm always sort of working on something. Right now, my main thing is this cram satire. It's a message book. It's sort of a Chuck Palahniuk, Elmore Leonard piece that I would like to have a, a bigger audience with. Um, my other work, you know, I'm, I'm busy just sending it to indie publishers, but this is the one that I, I want to have sort of a mainstream, a mainstream reach with. Having heard a more detailed synopsis of your current novel, I am willing to make the prediction officially that I think this would be a hit because just with like the economic storm clouds that I see on the horizon and this fact that despite all the rhetoric during the 2008 financial crisis about all the lessons we're going to learn and all the things we're going to mm -hmm. change, nothing changed, mm -hmm. at least nothing essential. And the fact that we're basically heading towards another 2008 crisis, in my opinion, I really feel like this is a very, very timely story that's going to resonate with a lot of people. Obviously, I'm biased. <laughs> I admit that. <laughs> The, the, the feedback has been very good. I'm, I'm holding out. It's something that, you know, in terms of like 
other publishing avenues. Yeah, those would be easy. I'm holding out because I want this to have the biggest the biggest release possible. In terms of in terms of plugging, though, I still have the two. They're a little bit hard to get, but the two YA series, the one and Werewolf Council, I'm very proud of them. Uh, I put a lot of a lot of work into those. Um, the one especially. I mean, it's like picking which is my favorite child of of all the books that I've I've had published. But like the one, the science fiction, it's just it was. I felt my imagination strain and grow when writing that series. Yeah, I'll definitely put links to both of those series in the podcast description. Thank you so much for being on the show with me today. I felt like in, today was it was more like you were a co-host and we were just two friends having a conversation, which is the way I wanted it to be, obviously, as we discussed, more so than my other episodes where it's kind of more of just a formal interview. So I really, really enjoyed it. I uh, really liked talking about the different films that was on our list. Any final words? Thank you again. Thank you very much for having me. This is really good fun. Took a while to watch all these films, and I can't always say that watching them was the best experience, but it was very enlightening, and I feel like my, uh, feel like I got a few new wrinkles in my brain. Yeah, so I just want to clarify. You meant what you meant when you said uh, not the best experience. You meant like not that these are bad movies, but in the sense that they <laughs> no, were brutal. No, no. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like watching Threads was not, was not something I want yeah. to do again. It was right. good to watch it once. It was not always. There's there's the phrase um, experience is the best teacher. I always extend it as it's not always the preferred way to learn. <laughs> but uh, yeah, if people want to uh, to talk to me about about movies or other such things, don't find me on Twitter because I'm not on that site anymore because I can't support it. <laughs> Understandably so. <laughs> and I hope you enjoyed that discussion of 10 films about collapse. Sorry if there was a movie you were hoping would be on the list but wasn't, or if it was on the list but there was an aspect to it that we didn't talk about. Obviously, with 10 movies, there was only so much we could talk about with each selection. But we're open to suggestions and requests, so if there's a movie you'd like us to talk about here in the future, just let us know. You can email me at editor at popmythology.com. And maybe if we get enough requests, we'll do another one of these. Or even if we don't get any requests, maybe we'll do another one anyway. Finally, just a quick mention, some of you might be wondering why we opened part one of this episode with a quote from the movie The Road, even though we spent the least amount of time discussing it. It's just because we thought it was an interesting and evocative quote that seemed to convey a feeling of collapse. We didn't mean to imply that the film was going to have some kind of special place in our discussion, so I'm sorry if it gave you that impression, just in case. However, the quote that opened part two from Bruce Springsteen's The Ghost of Tom Joad, that was intended to impart special significance to the movie that it references, which is, of course, The Grapes of Wrath. Okay, until next time, I am the pop mythologist, and this is the end. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Please subscribe, and if you're willing, share one of these episodes on social media. And if your chosen podcast platform allows reviews, like Apple Podcasts, I invite you to leave a review as well. Thank you.